you have your Bibles, turn with me to the 51st Psalm, Psalm 51. As you can see, I've titled this morning's message, New Year, New Me, because I imagine at some point today we'll go out of here, we'll go about our pleasantries, and some point we'll gather maybe as a family or friends or small group in someone's home tonight, maybe to celebrate the drop of a ball or how Ryan Seacrest still looks 25, or maybe you're a New Year's Eve Scrooge and you'll have earplugs in calling the police at 12.01 because fireworks are still going off. <laughs> Regardless of what your night may look like tonight, I'm sure a topic of conversation will arise, and Wade may have preached a little bit of my sermon, but you guys get part two. Um, I'm sure the topic of New Year's resolutions will get thrown out. Because as of right now, we've spent the better part of 60 days gorging ourselves on unhealthy holiday meals, buying junk we don't really need just because it's on sale, staying inside more because of the cold. Maybe you put on your nice Christmas suit last week and the pants didn't fit quite how you liked. But regardless, we begin to reflect on how we may improve ourselves in the new year. Interestingly, there is no shortage of research on how similar humans are on this topic. We all seek after the same things. We want to be healthier. We want to manage our money better. We want to go on more walks. We want to start going to the gym more. Every year, it seems Facebook picks a new food group that we declare as poison, and we try and cut that out of our diet. So we try to begin January 1st on the right foot. All of this culminates together in simulating what I would call the self-help market. It's full of books, podcasts, YouTube videos, YouTube channels, all dedicated to helping you create the best version of you. On Amazon alone, when I was researching for this topic, I was able to find over 9,000 unique, different titles, all dedicated to helping you improve your life. We as a culture have become obsessed with self-betterment. We life hack, we deconstruct, we reorient, we restart, revitalize, and renew all the time. However, in our attempt at creating a new year and new me, we sometimes lose focus of the areas of improvement that truly matter. We've traded in life-changing moves for fad diets. We've tossed aside the difficulty of improvement for temporary happiness. And before anyone goes and lights up my email inbox this week with complaints, I'll go ahead and put it out there, Bryce at lookoutvalley.org, because I'm calling everyone selfish this morning. I've never heard anyone say I'm joining the gym so my glorified body has a six-pack. <laughs> never. Very rarely do I hear people say I want to manage my money better because I'm not given enough. Right? You want to buy a jet ski, new golf clubs, whatever it is, motorcycle. I don't hear those things. So maybe instead of making 2024 the year of satisfying our flesh's goals and desires, could we this morning use those same words, renew, reorient, revitalize, but pushing ourselves towards repentance, sanctification, and chasing after the glory of God in 2024? This leads us now to our focal text. However, before we read the text this morning, I think it's important if we take a moment and set the stage for what is happening contextually in this psalm. The book of Psalms is full of praise, adoration, songs that were sung in the temple, stories of the miraculous works of God. But we will see this morning that Psalm 51 takes on a darker tone than anything you may have on a coffee mug or a t-shirt or above your kitchen table in your home. Psalm 51 is one of the seven penitential psalms, or psalms of repentance. This psalm was penned after a very specific instance we find in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. 
King David, a mighty king of Israel who was responsible for leading Israel through many victories and successes, now finds himself broken and contrite before the Lord after his affair with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. Let's let's read our text this morning. Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I will concede to you this morning that 2024 does indeed need to be a year of transformation. Individually, as a family, as a church family, I believe there are three areas of life we can seek to transform, to create a 2024 that is not focused on temporary or insignificant changes, but long-lasting with eternal weight. Bear with me now. I'm not as creative as Troy. Don't expect clever alliteration in my outline. My first point this morning is, number one, we need to transform how we view our sin. In verse one, David says, "'Have mercy on me, O God.'" I believe there has been a damning and dangerous movement in America over the last 50 to 60 years in which Americans as a society have become allergic to taking responsibility. We do everything in our power to scrape wrongdoing off of us like glitter on a Christmas decoration. You guys been taking those down? It gets all over. You spend the whole day piece by piece trying to get it off of you. That stuff gets everywhere and you spend hours just picking it off. When we wrong someone, when we wrong someone, our first reaction is rarely to apologize, seek forgiveness, and reconcile. More often than not, we get defensive, we dig a trench, and we sit down in it ready for war. If someone were to lie to you, what would we call that person? A liar, right? If someone were to take something from you that does not belong to them, what would we call that person? A thief, not a stealer, a thief. If we have someone cut us off in traffic, what would you call that person? Some of you do not answer. (laughs) You can't even say it in church. But to us, our sin is not a part of us. It's just some bad stuff we've done in the past. We were simply telling a half-truth or taking it because I needed it more than they did. Or, look, I had to make that exit. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Right? Because we view other people's sins as character traits, but we view our own as momentary slip-ups. But look at how David views a sin in verse 1. Have mercy on who? Me, O God. 
David knows his sin belongs to no one but him. He did it. He committed a multitude of heinous acts and doesn't try to shift the blame onto someone else. At his lowest moment, King David takes accountability and responsibility because he now understands that his sin is dangerous. It's my first sub-point this morning. Our sin is dangerous. What started small and to David seemed momentary and insignificant quickly turned disastrous. You've heard it said before, and I think it bears repeating this morning, sin takes you farther than you ever expected to go and keeps you far longer than you ever intended to stay. We see that played out here in this story. At first, in a moment of weakness and terrible judgment between David and Bathsheba, it spirals totally out of control and ends up with murder and the, and the temptation, or sorry, the murder and death of David's child later in the story as a result. When we give into the temptation and draw of sin, it never pays off the fulfilling dividends that we expected. The most vivid illustration for this I've ever seen in my life, it has stuck with me to this day. I was seven years old at Hollywood Baptist Church in a single wide trailer we met in behind the sanctuary for Children's Church. Two of the most faithful uh, people of God I've ever met in my life, Mr. Paul and Miss Debbie, they commented on Facebook this morning saying they're going to watch this later. So, love you guys. Um, they laid out hot sauce packets across the room, and they would start on the first hot sauce packet and say, name a small sin, right? And a kid would shout out, well, when your mom tells you to make your bed and you say no. And they go, okay. Well, now that you're disobeying your parents, you're more likely to go to this next hot sauce packet. And whatever it was, and it would slowly creep down the line, and we would see how something as small in the beginning led to them being on the far side of the room. And in my seven-year-old mind, I could see the connection coming. At the end of the demonstration, we could see how easy it was to end up so much deeper in sin than we ever thought imaginable. Sin is dangerous, it's far-reaching, and it must be slayed daily and without hesitation because its consequences are eternal and long-lasting. So sin is dangerous. Number two, not only is sin dangerous, but sin is also cosmic treason against a holy God. I wasn't going to make you write all that, so I just put cosmic treason. Verse four, against you only have I sinned. This sounds like we might be taking things a little far. Cosmic treason but we need to shift how we view our sin because the holy and righteous God of the universe takes our sin extremely seriously. There's a common phrase used in the church that has been stretched about as far as it can be, and we've all heard it. It's become a battle cry for Christians who view sin weekly, and we're going to attack it this morning with ferocity. Who here has ever heard the saying, God hates sin but loves the sinner? Probably everybody, most everybody. God hates sin but loves the sinner. As comforting and cozy as this might make us feel in our sin, if we are to be effective in viewing sin, we need to understand that this is not a helpful strategy in reaching the lost. The reality of the situation for an unregenerate sinner when they die in this life and stand before a holy God is not a welcome home, my good and faithful servant. The believer gets to hear that before the throne of cross that the sinner faces nothing but wrath destruction, and holy judgment. Does God love the sinner? Sure, in a global benevolent sense, yes, God does. The sinner gets to experience nice weather, maybe great relationships, and maybe even wealth, and multiple cars, and houses, and millions and millions of dollars. But what waits for them after this life is not what waits for the believer. Fourteen times in the first 50 Psalms alone, God makes clear his hatred and wrath towards the sinner. And this is off-putting because our culture hates 
taking accountability for the wrong things we've done. Look at Psalm 5, verses 5 and 6. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. The truth is we rob the cross of its efficacy when we belittle our sin and make it out to seem less than it actually is. Because if you want to know what God thinks of your sin, look at the cross. God crushed Jesus as a display of what punishment was due unto us. If God did not have hatred and wrath towards the sinner, then the blood spilt at Calvary was totally unnecessary. This is what makes the gospel story so scandalous and so beautiful. How can a holy and righteous God look down upon his creation who is living in total defiance and love them because he crushed his son? The cross is a picture of total wrath and total love being displayed at the same moment. Wrath upon him who did not deserve it, upon the sinless and spotless lamb so he could justify and love his creation. This is the beauty of the redemption story. When we reconfigure reconfigure our view of sin and realize Jesus was not just dying for the sin of the world, but personalize it and realize that God had to crush Jesus so he could love you the way Jesus deserves. Our rightful view of sin as cosmic treason before a holy and righteous God matters. It matters because that is exactly how the Lord views our sin. If we are to transform our view of sin, we must understand that our sinful acts are not only wrongdoings maybe against your brothers and sisters in Christ, but are treason against a holy God who views them with anger. In transforming our view of sin, we've seen that sin is dangerous, sin is cosmic treason, and now we see that our sin is inherent. That's point number three. Verse five, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. We oftentimes view our sins as actions or incidents that occur outside of us. Remember, we're a person that has done a few bad things. I'm not a bad person. But David is declaring here that from the moment he entered the world, he was a sinner with a sinful heart. If I were to walk around downtown today with a sign on a scale of 1 to 10, like Jay Leno used to do, you know, he walked downtown asked people questions. And on the scale of 1 through 10, if I held it up to every person and asked them, how good of a person do you think you are? What do you think they would say if I gave them a little dry erase marker and let them circle one of the numbers? Probably between 6 to 8, Right? Anything below a four, I'm speed walking away. Anything above eight, you're too full of yourself. I know nines and tens in here, let's be real. Right? But most of us would probably place ourselves in that six to eight range. If one or zero is like Hitler and ten is like your sweet grandma, we'd probably place ourselves, well, we, we do probably more good things than bad, but I, I know myself. Seven. Right? Feels safe. I'm not going to ask you to answer this out loud, but just in your head, where would you place yourself on this scale? Zero to ten. The reality is the Bible has left us no option outside of one and ten. Scripture tells us that our good works are but filthy rags before a holy and righteous God. In Romans 3, Paul writes, No one is good, not even one. Christ alone is the ten, and we are all filthy wretches sitting comfortably at one. We were born into sin and we have squalored and pitched our tent inside of self-centeredness and evil deeds. 
We have a natural and inherent bend towards sin that has infected us all over. Great illustration for this. Um, when I was younger, I may have been late middle school, early high school, um, a Sunday came around where they were shorthanded in the nursery. Now, you have to be really shorthanded to have come to me at 14 years old and asked me to serve in the nursery. I fully believe um, that God has a blessing laid upon our nursery workers. I also believe that God does not call the equipped, but he equips the called. Um, I think my equipment got lost in the mail because um, when that Sunday came, I felt just as unprepared as the day before. So I go to our children's minister and she puts me with uh, two-year-olds. And I was like, this is easy. Feed them some goldfish, maybe throw on veggie tails, call it a day. Um, unfortunately, I think revival might have broken out that morning because it was like 12.45 before parents showed up to grab their kids. And so we had one kid in the room, came from a very godly home, great godly parents, know the kid to this day, just the best. He waddles over to me as two-year-olds do and tells me in his childlike babble that another kid had taken a toy from him. Now, I don't believe God had gifted me with the gift of mediation, but I thought for sure I could handle a dispute between two-year-olds. So, you know, I squat down and I tell him, we'll just head back over there, ask really nicely for him to give you the toy back and all should be fine. So, pat him on the back, hand him a goldfish and send him on his way. I did not consider maybe role-playing with this kid what would happen if the offender told him no. So he waddles back over, and I'm watching this play out, you know, feeling like I just handled this thing. And uh, he asks very kindly, can I please have my toy back? The other kid says no. So he grabs him by the face and bites him. <laughs> I mean, like jaws. Like, we had to, like, pull him off of him, you know? Now, I know the, the home this kid comes from. His parents did not teach him to bite the face of another kid that takes your toy. You want to know why? Because they didn't have to. As, as good and perfect and sweet as this little kid was, as awesome as the home he came from was, we are sinful creatures by nature. The holiest here among us are in the room with the babies. However, a sinful heart resides inside of every person. Also, that was my last Sunday in the two-year-old class, by the way. I retired. I made it one Sunday. The point of this story, again, is that the child was never taught to bite the face of another kid. We are born with a sinful nature that tells us to seek what is self-satisfying, not to do what is right, but what we believe is right, and get what our heart desires. Thankfully, King David does not stay in the state of brokenness, because we as believers are not bound to a life of shame and sorrow. As we continue on in this psalm, we get to see that the love of the Father far outweighs any sin that we could commit. When I was talking with Blake this week about the set list, my first request was His mercy is more. What a beautiful hymn to start the morning off with. For however much we may sin, His mercy is so much more. And that leads me to point number two, which is we need to transform how we view the cross. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. From the beginning in the garden, God gave man a command to be free of sin. There was a perfection in the garden, a shalom between God and man in which they were able to dwell together. Man willingly, however, broke the peace of the garden by stepping into sin. And it's at this moment when God had every right to turn Adam and Eve back into the dust he just created them from. Because he told them, the day you eat of the tree, you will surely what? Die. Die. Thanatos, cease to exist. Instead, they did not die that day. 
They went on to live for a, almost a thousand years after that. Because although our sin is great, the mercy of the Father is more. The sin of the fall ran rampant throughout mankind, leading to wars, famine, poverty, injustice, suffering, hunger, and so on, all culminating in the crux of human history when the Son of God took on human flesh, lived as truly God and truly man, lived a sinless life, and was killed on a Roman cross. We know the story well. But in our efforts to transform how we view the cross this morning, I want us to see that at the cross we find finality. That's my first subpoint for that one. We find finality. The cross is the meeting place where the power of sin and the condemnation of the believer come to die forever. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because when Christ declared it is finished, to die, it doesn't just mean until the next time when you blow it. It doesn't just mean until the next time when you slip up or mess up or do the thing that you swore at the altar you were never going to do again or at youth camp you said you were done with for sure, 100%. It means forever. It is finished. The power of sin and Satan's claim on your life is broken. You have been taken from the kingdom of darkness and placed in the closed hand of the Father never to be taken out again. We struggle to grasp this idea of finality and forgiveness because we are terrible at showing it. We may forgive, but we never forget. If you are um, familiar with Abby and I's relationship, we bonded very quickly over our love for our, the TV show, The Office. And there is an episode in there. We were, have been rewatching all of the Christmas episodes. There's like one every season. And in one of them, uh, the lead character, Michael Scott, shows up to play Santa and finds out someone else in the office has been asked to be Santa instead. So he flips out and decides he's going to be Jesus instead, turns his suit inside out, pulls the beard down, and declares himself as Jesus Christ. And in telling those who chose the other employee as Santa instead of him, he says, I may forgive but I never forget. It's funny, haha, untrue. The beauty of the cross is that in the moment where you repented of sins and placed your faith in the redeeming work of the Lamb, you have been wiped clean of sin and the Father has forgotten every wrongdoing you have ever done or will ever do. Isaiah 43, 25 says, He will remember them no more. This is a better gift than anything you could have gotten a week ago. A quick story about a wealthy Englishman in the 20th century who bought a Rolls-Royce. I'm um, not the most car-savvy guy, but Rolls-Royce was advertised as the car that would never break down. Luxury brand, so the Englishman buys this car. He's driving it in France one day, and what do you know? Sure enough, the car breaks down. So he finds the nearest phone, calls Rolls-Royce, and said, uh, excuse me, um, your car has broken down. And they immediately apologize and say, we're so sorry, sir. We'll have a mechanic on a plane out to you within the hour. And sure enough, Rolls-Royce puts a mechanic on a private jet, flies him to the man. He shows up, fixes the car as fast as he can, puts the man back in it, and on the road in France he goes. A few weeks go by, and the man has not received a bill for his repairs. He's a wealthy man. He can pay his own bill. So he goes, and he calls Rolls-Royce up again and says, hello, uh, my car broke down a few weeks ago in France. You sent out a mechanic. I would like to pay back for the bill. I know that must have been expensive for the travel and the repairs, and, and I, can, I can afford this. I would like to pay for my repairs. Rolls-Royce says, we're sorry, sir. 
but we have absolutely no record of your car ever breaking down. Yes. That the God of the universe, holy and righteous in his hatred of sin, is able to look upon you and me and declare us as righteous because of the wrath he poured out on Christ is the ultimate act of love and mercy. Transforming our view of the cross leads us to a greater love for the Father when we begin to truly understand the finality that was shown at Calvary. That leads me to my second subpoint. At the cross, we find cleansing. The Christian religion tends to be so offensive to the rest of the world because Jesus' actions in the Gospels are so counter to human logic. When you go shopping in stores, it's not uncommon to find a sign that says, if you break it, you what? Or if you see a small kid um, who declares, I can do this, carrying a plate of food, right? And you see it wobbling, you tell him, if you drop it, you got to what? Clean it up. It's the American way. We grab ourselves by our own bootstraps. We pull ourselves up by them. We have this pervasive sense of, I can handle this myself, and we've seen this slowly creep its way into the church. In high school, I overheard a conversation between a couple of kids, and one was inviting the other to his youth group that night. And he says, look, man, I, I really would. I would love to come, but my life is just a mess right now. I just, I'd be so ashamed. I need to clean myself up first, and then I can come and get right with God. Quick poll of the room for all my parents in here. My wife, we just entered the third trimester today. We are very excited to meet our Piper Grace, and we count down the days. Um, quick poll for my parents. You come home from work, haven't seen your kid all day. You miss them bad. You're uh, all day, slaving away. Hard day. You come home, you see your kid is running towards you, begging for a hug. Tears in their eyes. They're just excited to see their mommy and their daddy. About five feet away, you see that your kid has been playing in the mud. Looks like he wrestled a hog. You turn it on the hug? Absolutely not. Not a chance. Our view of God as Father leads us to think that He is away from us, that he is not intimate with his people. But the gospel clearly tells us that there is a spirit inside of us crying, Abba, Father. And when we run to the Father, regardless of how dirty or messed up we have made things for ourselves, God stands ready to bring us back into the fold, clean you up all over again. He knows what he signed up for. I tell my students this all the time, that you can't surprise God. He's not sitting there in heaven all of a sudden going, I really thought they were going to get it right this time. And here they are, messing up all over again. Quick question. Uh, when Christ saved you, how many of your sins, or sorry, when Christ died on the cross, how many of your sins were future sins? All of them. Every single one you would ever commit for the entirety of your life. God knew what he was getting into when he saved us. He does not regret the decision. He's not sitting up there Next to Jesus going, I don't know about this one. He knew you. Before the foundation of the world was laid, was laid, he knew what he was getting into with us. The beauty in the story of the prodigal son is exactly this. The Lord stands ready for you to run back into the fold this morning. He's standing ready to clean you up all over again. The cross provides salvation for anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord. It is a salvation that is not lacking in power. It's not dependent upon your striving, your efforts, your dedication, or the depth of your depravity. 
For our God is not foolish, nor is he caught off guard when we blow it time and time again. We will find ourselves countless times in this life bringing ourselves back before the throne, riddled and covered with shame and guilt over our sinful deeds, only to find unending grace and unending mercy. Don Carson put it this way in a sermon he preached at the Gospel Coalition Conference back in 2016. Uh, Picture two Jews in the land of Gosher in the time of Exodus. Their names are Smith and Brown, remarkably Jewish names. The day before the first Passover, having a little discussion, Smith says to Brown, boy, aren't you a a little nervous about tonight? Brown responds, well, I mean, God told us what to do through his servant Moses. There's no need to be nervous. Haven't you slaughtered the lamb and painted the doorposts? Aren't you gonna have the Passover meal with your family? Smith responds, well, duh. I'm not a dummy. Still, I mean, with everything going on around here with the flies and the gnats and the famine and and darkness, I mean, it's pretty scary. And and now there's a threat of the angel coming through and taking the firstborn. and, And you know, I love my Charlie. Sure, I put the blood up, but this is still scary. I know I'll surely be glad when this night is over. Brown looks at him and responds, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. That night when the angel comes through the land, the angel of death passes over. Which one lost his son? The answer, of course, of course is neither. Because death does not pass over them on the ground of the clarity or intensity or perfection of the faith exercised, but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. This is what silences the accuser. It's not the strain and the effort we put towards our own cleansing, but the blood of the Lamb that makes us holy before God. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. This is the basis of all assurance for the believer because it is not us that provides the finality or cleansing of our salvation, but the blood of the Lamb in which we place our trust and our hope. The finality of the cross means you are a son and a daughter of the King forever. And the cleansing of the cross means no matter how filthy you are, the Father stands ready to clean you because he is rich in love and mercy. Not because of what we've brought to the table, not because of how we've assisted in the process, but solely because we are covered in the blood of the Lamb. Now, quickly, we'll wrap up this morning with point number three. In our efforts of transformation, I believe we need to transform our view of sanctification. It's a long word. I'll give you a second to write. The word sanctification in Scripture literally means to make holy. And that perfectly leads us into my first subpoint for this. Our sanctification should lead us towards holiness. As believers, we have been given a clear call and command to seek after holiness. God loved us even while we were sinners. Yes, amen, absolutely. I'll be preaching that till the day that I die. But God also loved us so much that he didn't leave us in our sinful mess exactly where he found us. In John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's a hinge there. The proof of your love for Christ will be shown by your constant desire for holiness and your constant hatred and war with sin. We're called to wake up every day recognizing that we are at war with our own flesh seeking for self-satisfaction as we attempt to rip and tear away from those desires and turn back towards God. 
Oftentimes, I see new believers get frustrated or upset that their salvation wasn't a fix-all button, right? We prayed the prayer at youth camp. The music was playing. Tears were flowing. We go down by the ocean and do a little, like, campfire acoustic session. And then you go back home. The camp ends. The youth retreat ends. The conference ends. And now we're back, and life starts to kick you in the teeth again. Things get really tough. Your regular life becomes difficult. We viewed it almost... Um, or we view our sanctification wrongly, that our salvation experience was the end of all temptation. We would never sin again. We were perfect from that moment on. But you would be a dummy to think that you could go from couch potato to Boston Marathon overnight. There will be minor successes and then a major failure and then major successes followed by minor failures. The path of sanctification and holiness does not look like a straight line, but a stock chart when the market's doing well, right? It's going up. There's dips, sure, but there is a clear and defined upward path that leads us closer and closer to Jesus. Our path and journey towards sanctification should also lead us towards praise. It's my second subpoint for this one. Should lead us towards praise. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. I believe Obviously, it is in my job description here, but I believe Christians should be a praising people. We are a singing people. We're one of the only religions that gathers on a weekly basis and sings together. We praise God for a multitude of reasons, for all the things that he has done for us. We praise God for the work that he is currently doing for us, and we praise him for all the things he will do for years and years and years to come. I think the easiest way to become a praising person is to remove yourself from the center of your own universe. When we flip our mindset from, I am going to accomplish great things with God by my side. When we flip it to, God is going to do great things, I'm just lucky to be a part of it. We become a praising person. And look, I get it. Life is hard. It's really, really difficult. It's going to last your whole life, by the way. Life, life is going to last your whole life. In the, great, in the words of the great poet and philosopher, Rocky Balboa, Put it this way, the world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. I'm not going to do an Italian accent, but just bear with me. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. So the Christian at times will find himself shaking his fist at God, wondering where he is, wondering what he's doing in this moment, how he could be doing this to you right now, his good and faithful servant, right? Now, I mean, comforting is that countless times in the Psalms, King David runs before the Lord with the exact same anger and accusations. Where are you? What's going on? Why have you abandoned me? Why are you doing this to me? However, what reels David back in and what should reel the believer back to a life of praise is milestone markers in our journey that we're able to look back on and see a tumultuous time that the Lord brought us through. And we create these in our memory to look and say, God has not abandoned me. Things might be really hard and really tough right now, but he's just as present as he was years ago. We serve a good God, a God worthy of praise regardless of our circumstances. The Christian praises God on the mountaintop and in the valley, not only for the things he has done, but because he is worthy of it. Lastly, and I'll close with this, 
My third and final subpoint is that we need to transform, transforming our view of sanctification leads us towards evangelism. Verse 13, David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Let's imagine today in preparation for um, how exciting your New Year's Eve is going to be. I will be using my brand new smoker I got for Christmas. We bought a 17-pound brisket, which I realize now is probably way too big for my first time. Um, So that will be the entirety of my day. But regardless, let's say you're going out and have errands still to run. And on your travel through the traffic of Chattanooga, you see a gas station on the side of the road, the side of the road, um, kind of hidden a little bit. But on the sign above the station, where there is normally a price, it says free, F-R-E-E. Like, what? So you pull over, right? Hopefully not cut anybody off. If you do, you wave. And then you pull into the gas pump, and you check, and the little digital screen right there as you go to grab the handle, sure enough, says free. And you're like, well, I don't want to get caught in a fraud case, so let me go inside, and just one more time, I'll check before I I get some of this gas. So you go in, and you ask the the clerk working behind the counter, and she says, sure enough, the owner of this gas station is full of grace and kindness. Gas is free. So what would you do? Run outside, fill your car up, maybe try and buy some gallons of milk, pour those out on the ground and fill those up too. Carry as much home as you can, run home, tell everyone in your house, grab their car, follow me to the gas station, we can all get free gas. Then you run back home and start knocking on doors. Hey, free gas. And then you run back, right? And then you go home and you post on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or TikTok or Snapchat, whatever it is you have, you post wherever you can to let people know about this great and awesome opportunity you can use to save hundreds of dollars a month in free gas. However, we sit here this morning, collectively, a group of people who have been saved from enduring the wrath of a holy God. Given a new heart, new life, new purpose, and a right standing before God the Father. What do we do with it? We clam up. Well, I don't want to be seen as intolerant or offensive or weird or, or make things awkward in this conversation. I don't want to seem like a bigot. I don't want to seem like I'm Bible-thumping or impressing upon someone their free liberty. We as Christians sit on the cure to the sickness of the world. And we sometimes sit here attempting to live the least offensive and effective Christianity that we can. We want to do just enough, make a 70 on the test, and pass. How can we look at the pain and suffering being displayed in our world as a result of the sinful and fallen man and do nothing about it? David here in his brokenness is finding redemption before a good and gracious God, receiving ultimate grace and mercy, and declares here in verse 15 that he will bring sinners to the Lord. Our battle cry as a forgiven people should be to bring sinners into the fold. To have them experience the free gas, the grace, the love, and mercy that God has shown us, totally undeserved on our part. And it should be our mission, our battle cry, to go out and help heal the world. Closing with this, we serve a good God. A God who stands ready to forgive and cleanse. A God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Regardless of what your 2023 might have looked like, let today 
become one of those milestone markers in your journey. Maybe you have lived an unoffensive and ineffectual Christianity. Maybe up until this point in your life, you have not done anything of merit for the kingdom of God. You got saved a while ago, youth camp, summer camp, retreat, whatever it was. And since then, it's, it's, been, it's been cool. You, you and God are cool with each other. There's no passion in the relationship with the Lord. You don't seek after holiness. You don't seek to share the gospel with others. You just, you're just kind of living, right? You and God are roommates. I would say to you that if the Lord is not the king of your life, you're in a dangerous and dangerous place. We're called to wake up, slay our sin, chase holiness, and attempt to bring unbelievers along with us. So today can be your chance to press the reset button. Say 2023 was a wash. I'm going to make 2024 the year that I chase after Jesus. Make it a milestone marker that we can fill with instances of holiness, fill our days with praise, and make evangelism our mission. One last quote, and then we'll close. I'll close with the words of C.T. Studd. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years. Each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life twill soon be passed. For only what's done for Christ will last. Now we're going to move to a time of response. In a second, I'm going to close. The band will come up. We will stand. We will sing. Um, this is a great opportunity to talk with the Lord and say, Lord, what would you have for me in 2024? Great recipe for success is to say, Lord, my answer is yes. Now tell me what you want me to do. God's not here to negotiate, right? We say, yes, Lord, lead me. You are king of my life, king of my heart. Take me where you would have I'm just happy to be along for the ride. And the Lord will change the desires of your heart over the course of 2024. He will lead you into places you never thought imaginable. If you'd have told me four years ago I'd be standing right here doing this right now, I would have laughed in your face and called you crazy. But God had way better plans than I did, and I'm so thankful mine didn't come true. So we're going to close. And I want you to know as we stand and we sing, there is nothing special about coming down front to pray. As a kid, I was convinced God couldn't hear you unless you were down here at the altar. Untrue. You can close your eyes. You can turn around. You can sit down. You can leave. The Lord can hear you wherever he is. So, we're going to stand. We're going to sing here in just a minute. But this is my urge this morning. If you are a believer who has lived a passionless and weak Christianity, your prayer this morning is, Jesus, I want to make 2024 about you. I'm tired of it being about me. For the unbeliever, if you are standing in this room, I want you to know that although we talked about the sinfulness of man and how sinners are standing under the wrath and judgment of a holy and gracious God, yes, that is true. However, the Lord is rich in love and mercy, ready to bring you into the fold, a seat at the table, a place in his kingdom, not as a servant, not as a foot washer, but as a son or daughter of the Most High King. He stands ready to welcome you home. So your prayer this morning is, Jesus, my heart is yours. Take it all. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.